Snowy-capped mountains are such a picturesque picture of where we get our water. Eventually, that snowy snow has to melt until it makes water, and that is what we're drinking. But how much snow is melting to make how much water we're able to drink, and how is that changing over the years? Furthermore, could we possibly predict how this is going to change in the future? My name is Louis Colorotolo, and I'm currently melting because my roommate has already turned on the heat, although it is only late October. And I'm a PhD student at the University of Guelph, trying my absolute best to get a PhD in food science. And when I am not doing that, I like to talk to other graduate students to see what they're doing and why any of us should care about it. In this week's procrastination activity, I am talking with Caroline Arbery-Wake, who is a mountain climber, former ski bum, but also someone who is very obsessed with snow melting. And it turns out that we don't know everything about snow melting just yet. Here's a snip of something that even Caroline is still trying to figure out. And so two years ago, there's a sinkhole that opened in the middle of the toe. Uh, It's uh, when the glaciers melt the water trickles to the bottom of the glacier and it creates like these under glacier rivers and at some point the ice got thin enough on top of that river that the ice collapsed and it became this big sinkhole uh on on the ice and over the the last two years that sinkhole has expanded and now the toe is kind of collapsed all around it and that is something that we don't simulate in our models So if you like underground caverns of glacial rivers, well then you're gonna have to listen to the rest of the episode to figure out what Caroline is talking about. But while you're listening, keep in mind that we are both just graduate students. We don't know everything, which is why you're listening to an episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi Caroline, how are you doing today? I'm good, and you? I am doing very well over here myself. Could you do us a favor and tell us your educational history? Certainly. Um, I am from Quebec, so I did my undergrad at McGill University in Earth System Science. And then straight at the end of my undergrad, uh, the next day I started my master's degree there as well. Uh, That was a continuation of some undergrad research I had been doing. Um, And I did my master's degree in Earth and Planetary Sciences, also at McGill. And then at the end of my master's, I was like, nope, no, no, no don't want to do science anymore. This is crazy. This is way too much. All, there's all these big problems in the world and scientists are just in their lab, like analyzing tiny little data and listening to themselves speak and sound important. And I was like, this is not what I need to do in my life. I need to do something that will actually feel a little bit more important for society. Uh, so I took a year off and was a ski bum. Um, very important for society. Yeah, uh, I just absolutely. Uh, moved to the Rockies and skied a lot and learned about snow science. And after a year, I was like, well, you know what? Maybe science isn't that bad after all. So uh, I decided to go back to school for a PhD uh, in which I study uh, mountain hydrology and water resources. So it's quite applied to societal needs. Uh, And I'm doing that at the University of Saskatchewan. um, But I am based in our lab space that is in Kenmore in Alberta. So even though I am, my university is in Saskatchewan, I'm based in Alberta in the mountains so I can actually access my field sites uh, more easily. So you, you've traveled a number of the provinces at this point. You, you're, you're really getting across the, uh, the entire nation, aren't you? 
Yes, it's a big country. And this, a lot of people are like, oh, you're studying in one country. And you're like, well, let me tell you how far my previous university was. <laughs> yeah, and, and I guess the good thing here is that you don't have to go into in-person meetings at all. They're not going to fly you in for a meeting in Saskatchewan, are they? No, well, we had to. The, the deal was, if you're here, it's your decision to be in Alberta instead of Saskatoon. So if we have a meeting, like a committee meeting or some class works, you have to go to Saskatoon. So for about four months, I commuted during my course, my courses in my first year. So I had to go in like once every three or four weeks. And then uh, since then, I've been going maybe once or twice a year. But now with the pandemic, we happily shifted online. And now I haven't had to go to Saskatoon, even though it is a very nice city and a very nice campus. It is quite a long drive, especially in winter. Oh, gosh. Well, that that's good news that you don't have to uh, go so, so often. But you are in Alberta, and you said that you are in the place in which you can do your research because you're in, you know, the physical environment in which your research is important. So give us a general idea of what you research. I study glacierized catchment hydrology. So I study snow and ice in the mountains, um, specifically in the mountains where there are glaciers. So in the Canadian Rockies, that's great. There's a lot of snow and ice. Winter lasts for most of the year. Um, so I tried to understand how with climate change um, and like the changing climate and the changing landscapes that we have in the mountains, how that's impacting our water resources. Uh, and it's, it's pretty important because glaciers are typically far away. No one really sees them. No one really thinks of them, but they're really important for our water resources. So like in cities quite far from the mountains, for example, Calgary, Edmonton, that are 150 kilometers outside of the mountain, they still rely on the water that comes from the snow and ice located far away up high in the mountains. So understanding how the water travels from the top of the mountain all the way down to the city is, is quite important for irrigation and hydropower and drinking water and, and all water resources, really. So, you know, it's funny because we often, you know, we get water and we say, all right, this water tastes better than that water. Uh, and, and we have our preferences. And some people like city water, other people like suburb water. And then we look at bottles of water and we see that beautiful picture of the mountain. Um, but we are pretty disconnected from where our water is coming from, aren't we? Yes, yes, definitely. Also, I, I heard this somewhere that uh, in Canada, our tap water is better quality than our bottled water. Um, and I think that's incredible. Like we just have in most of Canada, at least, obviously, there's some exceptions. We have really good uh, drinking water quality. But my work focuses a little bit more on the quantity and less on the quality of the water. So I'm much more on do we what is the level of the river? Um, do we have enough water in August when it's been really hot? It's been really dry. Uh, we're in a drought, uh, there's no more snow melting. Where's the water in the river coming from at that time? Well, some of it comes from glaciers. And that's kind of, that's the part that I'm mostly trying to understand. All right. So, you know, I think the, the interesting thing that I always remember when being in like earth science and like those courses way back when in like, you know, high school or whatever, I remember thinking like, all right, so water goes down a river and it, you know, eventually empties out into the ocean. Uh, but it, it's got to run out eventually. The, I, it, it, there's a whole river and it's constantly flowing. So it comes from a source. Look at that. I'm, I'm really impressing myself right now with my earth science knowledge. It comes from a source. And this source you're saying is sometimes like the snowy cap mountains, those kinds of glaciers? 
Yeah, so I mean, the water cycle on the big scheme is oceans evaporate, clouds carry that moisture, and then with the big mountains, the they kind of block the clouds. So then there's more rain and snow that falls in the mountains than in other environments. And because it's cold in the mountains, that snow stays there and glaciers grow over hundreds of years, um, very long periods. Glaciers grow and they become these stores of water, these water towers that then release that water to the plains or to the downstream environment uh, in the summer where all the other sources are typically unavailable. And then those rivers are used by humans and then flow back to the ocean where they evaporate again and then go back to the top of the mountain. And that's a cycle, right? That's the that's the, the water waters. cycle. There we go. So I guess what um what I got a lot of questions about in this sense is that we see this water cycle happening and we know that it is happening, but we still need people to measure how much water is in these different portions. Yes. And like most most natural sciences, it sounds very simple. Oh, we'll just measure how much rain there is or what's the hmm. temperature. And it turns out it's really hard to measure these things. Just to measure how much rain, you need to have like a bucket that measures the drops, but then you need to be able to measure it. And then sometimes animals will go drink in it, or it's going to get tipped over by a bear, or it's going to evaporate. Or if it's windy, the rain won't actually fall in because it's getting carried away by the wind. So even something as simple as how much did it snow, how much did it rain, it's really hard to know. So to understand the water cycle and how much water is in the different elements at different time is a, a quest. You know, I guess that's one of those uh, many things that in every field, there's something that's like extremely difficult to do that people probably wouldn't expect it to be. I would have never thought the measuring rainfall would be that much of a complicated process. But it, it also changes so fast. Um, in the prairies, for example, you have these big convective storm, like one big thundercloud. So you might have a huge amount of rain on one farm and the next farm over, no rain whatsoever. And same thing in the mountains, the clouds could go up this valley or maybe it's going to get shifted into the next valley over. So there might be a lot of rain on this part of the mountain and zero rain on the other part. So if your gauge, if your measurement is at one spot instead of another, it sounds like there was no rain all summer, but actually just fell like a kilometer to the east or something. So it's, it's very variable. That it sounds like that's an incredibly difficult thing to do, and and you know even when we think about the the weather patterns that we see down in suburbs and cities, we look at the seven day forecast and it's uh, rarely accurate uh, <laughs> to any degree. So weather is incredibly variable, and we know that weather varies from season to season. That's you know uh, we, we observe that every single year of our lives. But what you're looking at more so specifically is how the weather is affecting the water sources. So I'm looking at how the weather month to month, season to season will shift, how, how quickly things change in the mountains. But then I'm also looking at how all of that, those quick changing weather patterns are changing long term. And, are, and so that becomes climate change, right? If you average the weather over a very long period, now you're looking at a trend over time. So I'm looking at that. Uh, but to understand that, you also have to understand the little bit of changes day to day, like did it rain today or tomorrow? Because if you don't know that, then you can't even do an average. Um, yep. So there's really those two scales of it rained today, there's water in the river. Uh, it's really hot this week, so it's, the glacier is going to melt more. There's going to be a lot of water in the river. 
And well, the glacier has reduced by 30% in the last 10 years or 50 years. And how is that going to affect the water in the river? So we get to that point in which you're listening to a science radio show, uh, and we have already used our one of our favorite buzzwords, climate change. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if you're listening to a science radio show, you, you kind of got to expect it. Um, but do us a favor, Caroline. Could you tell us climate change is bad, right? For human, yeah, it is bad. It is bad for many reasons, for many parts of the world. I don't think there is any uh, segment of our society that doesn't get impacted by climate change. The best analogy I've heard is to define climate change as the great exacerbator. It, it makes everything worse. So if there were some tensions, it makes those tensions worse. If there were some floods, it makes those floods worse. If there were some droughts, it makes the droughts worse. If there were some migration from different parts of a country because things were not going well, it might get make those things worse. Um, so it impacts every aspect of our society in different ways. It's not always just warmer weather. Sometimes it could be drier, wetter, more uh, extreme events. Um, and it really impacts our world because we've, we've, humanity has developed in a certain climate and then all of a sudden we're pushing a different climate and we don't know how to deal with it. None of our systems is, is, was developed for that. So the thing is, is that, you know, based on all the production that we're doing, all the industry that we have and the power plants and the coal burning and the oil and all these things, we are directly manipulating the climate. Is that correct? Manipulating is a tricky word. I would say we're definitely changing it. Our activities are having an impact on the climate. Virtually everyone that studies climate agrees that CO2 and... and, um, uh, greenhouse gases are the reason that the climate is warming. And with this overall warming of the planet, it affects regional areas differently. So even though we are warming entirely the planet, locally, the effects could be different. Um, so even though it is global warming, in some areas it could be more snow or more droughts or more hurricanes. It's not just warming everywhere. That's why climate change is a better word. Um, but yes, we are, human activity is causing climate change, at least the one that we're seeing now. This is, this is a, an interesting point. We know that uh, there are a number of things that are causing climate change or affecting climate change. But you're still out there measuring these long-term trends. What, why, why are we still sending you out to measure these things if we know uh, that CO2 is affecting the climate? Why can't we just say, all right, CO2 is affecting the climate, let's call it a day. We now understand climate change. Where do you come in? We need to know how this environment will be like in 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 years. If we want to be able to adapt to the changes that we're seeing, we need to know how the environment will be. And that's where my work comes in, is trying to understand what's going on now so that we can predict, okay, in 30 years, this is how much water will be in the river. So if we need to allocate new wells, if we need to build a dam, if we need to plan for drinking water, for city development, we need to know how much water is in the river. So that's the big picture of why it's really important to understand how climate change is impacting the water cycle. Obviously, my work is a tiny, tiny bit of that answering that question. I'm really focused on a small part of that problem or that question. 
but that's a large scale. We need water is life. We need water for everything that we do in, in, as a society. So we need to understand where the water comes from and when it's going to be there, where it's going to be under different future climates, right? We're not set in stone. We don't exactly know where we're going to end up in 50 years. It really depends on what society decides. So for these different options, what are what are the consequences on the water cycle and how does it affect water resources? So for the record, you want to do things to limit the changes of the climate or, or like what technically is the agenda here? That is not my agenda. Okay. My agenda is measuring the, the the glacier melt, understanding what's causing it to change, understanding its variability, and coming up with, based on these different scenarios of future climate, this is how the water will be, and this is how the water in the river will be at different time of years, of year. But it is not my job as a scientist to say, this is what we want as a desirable future for the planet. Uh, that is outside of my scope. There you go. So that's the thing is that you're working on uh, a very large question. This is not, you know, the the question that uh, we're going to read a book that uh, Caroline wrote one day and she solved the entirety of the climate crisis. You are playing a tiny little part and you're playing a tiny little frozen part for that matter. Yes, definitely. Lots of frozen equipment, frozen toes, frozen fingers uh, and frozen water. So let's talk about what, how you go into the field and do some of your research because you, you clearly like the outdoors. Yeah. Um, I, well, so I grew up in Quebec. My skiing was my main hobby uh, growing up. I was huge into skiing. So I've always liked snow and cold. Um, and I come from a town where ocean science is kind of a big topic. So I always thought I'd study like the impacts of uh, climate change on the sea ice in the Arctic because it's like cold and adventure and remote environments. It's going to be great. And then I moved to the Canadian Rockies for a summer just to work here and learn English. And I saw mountains and I saw glaciers and I was like, ooh, <laughs> I like this. This is nice. And then so during my undergrad degree, I just kind of picked all the classes I could learn about to learn more about glaciers and mountains and water. And that kind of, that passion has just blossomed into my career now. So that that's really fantastic. But it all stemmed from the fact that I, I like the outdoors. I like to go outside. I want to be in the mountains. And then it made me realize how important the mountains are for our water resources. Um, so it really merged my interest well, because I have the skills to go in the mountains and measure stuff safely because Mountains are dangerous. There's avalanches, there's, and you could run into some bears. It's, you could die of hypothermia. It's, you need the special training to be able to do that. And I have that training from my hobbies. So it allows me to ask some research question and go in the field and measure things that uh, would otherwise be dangerous and, and difficult to do. How my science goes, typically, um, I go in the mountains, I observe things, I look at this mountain and this glacier, and I go, hmm. How does this work? I'm really curious about this. Uh, and then I designed an experiment where we're going to monitor things. We're going to measure things. So we measure the amount of snow on the glacier. We measure the amount of ice melt in the summer. Um, we measure the amount of water in the river. We measure the weather, sunlight, uh, wind speed, temperature. And then we take all of this data back to the computer and we run computer simulations. So a bunch of equations and math that simulate the water cycle and then 
based on that, we can understand what we saw and then make predictions of if things change, how will that affect what we saw? So when you talk about simulations, you know, I think a lot of people think like, okay, the matrix, ooh, you know, there's, you know, numbers trickling down the screen and this black screen with green letters. But so these simulations, these these predictions you're making, basically you tell the computer, we observe this, we see this now, we saw this in the past. What's a really good guess of what will happen in the future? It is not a guess. It is a calculation based on, based on math and physics. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of assumptions that we need to have. Um, but very basically, for example, right now we measured that the air temperature is four degrees and uh, the wind is two meters per second and a few other things. And we have equations that we have developed, other scientists have developed that simulate or that calculate how the air temperature, the wind, the sunlight is causing glacier melt. So we put in all of that data that we collected into these equations that are used by many scientists across the world. And then it gives us the melt would be two centimeters. And then we also measured the melt. So we know the melt was actually two centimeters. So we say, okay, our equations are doing a pretty good job at simulating reality, at representing what we actually measured. Uh, so now what if we said the temperature was six degrees instead of four? What if the temperature was two degrees warmer? What if the humidity was 50% more? How would that affect the melt? And that's how we simulate future climate. But obviously our estimates of future climate is not, it's not just me being one degree. It's actually the science community came up with these incredibly complex climate models and we take what they did and we use it. So this is a point that I, I love to highlight whenever talking about this kind of thing. We're not just guessing. We're not just thinking to ourselves like, oh, gee, I think there will be so much more water in the future. You are using math and physics that has been vetted and done by so many other people in order to come up with these predictions. Yes. Everything that we do as scientists is based upon the science, what the science community has come up with and has approved. We have a, a system where every time you... you come up with a new idea or you measure something new and you want to share it with the rest of the science community, the entire science community gets to say if they think it's right or not based on their own research. Um, and it's called peer review. So everything that we use has been approved by the scientific community beforehand and then we use it and then we come up with new estimates or new approaches and then we submit them to the science community and they say, actually maybe do this instead it might be a little better so you go back to the drawing board you adapt it um so there's no guessing there's never any guessing it's a quest for the truth that is highly highly regulated um that we have to prove and explain every single step of the way and if we can prove it well enough and explain it well enough that's it you don't you're not going to move forward with that idea and i think uh, another thing that some people might not uh, completely recognize is that this peer review process is really, really hard. It is. It is. Um, I mean, I understand why it's hard. Everyone is busy. Uh, everyone is tired. Everyone is pretty much exhausted. And then they have to give some of their time to judge someone else's idea. Um, and to be fair, potentially those ideas were not particularly well explained. And maybe they were not particularly well written. And so you're the person in charge of looking at it and finding the flaws. 
and your job is to find the flaws. So it's really hard to be nice about it sometimes because you're like, well, there's a problem. And on top of that, everyone's tired. So everyone's like has a little bit less energy to make pretty sentences to explain why something doesn't work. But yeah, it, it, peer review can be difficult. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, we have a lot of faith in the system when we go through peer review. So when you use these models to make these predictions, they're not just wild guesses. No, they're definitely not wild guesses. There is, it's an entire field of research of how to use these models um, and, and what is appropriate, how to go about doing it, what can you use, what can you not use, even what kind of questions you can ask. Some things I'm really curious about, but we don't have the tools to answer these questions right now. We just don't have either the, the right data or uh, the right um, knowledge to actually be able to explain these. So those are questions that either we can't answer yet or we need to put a lot of time and effort into trying to answer because no one has done it before. Do you have any examples of a question like that? Uh, yeah, actually. So I went to my glacier a few weeks ago. My glacier, Pado Glacier. It's not mine, but it's the one that I study. <laughs> it's your glacier, um, okay. <laughs> and so two years ago, there's a sinkhole that opened in the middle of the toe. Uh, it's uh, when the glaciers melt, the water trickles to the bottom of the glacier and it creates like these under glacier rivers. And at some point the ice got thin enough on top of that river that the ice collapsed and it became this big sinkhole uh, on on the ice. And over the, ne the last two years, that sinkhole has expanded and now the toe has kind of collapsed all around it. And that is something that we don't simulate in our models. In our models, we just assume that the glacier is this nice oval equal feature. We don't take into account all of these small, like small features that could really change the amount of melt that we have on the toe of the glacier. But we don't have the equations to do that. That's a new phenomenon that we didn't know existed until maybe five years ago when they started to appear on different glaciers around the world. So we don't, we don't have any equations to describe those in our models. We can measure them. We can know how much melt is occurring, but we can't quite yet take that understanding and put it in our simulations. So that's something that adds uncertainty to my model. Now I can say, well, I think that the glacier will melt this much more in the next five years based on these calculations, but there's uncertainty because of these new things that we see, for example, those sinkholes, uh, or for example, um, from the surf, the, the color of the glacier changes a little bit through time. It becomes darker sometimes. And so that's something that we don't necessarily know exactly how to quantify. So that's also an uncertainty. It's not a problem to have these uncertainties as long as you explain them and you clarify where they come from and what are the impacts on your work. But no one has a perfect answer. We all have uncertainties in our work. You just have to explain them well. So this is pretty interesting because I think pretty much everyone has seen ice melt before. You know, this this is not new. Uh, you know, every winter and, and then as we go into spring, we see ice melt. But there are still completely unanswered uh, questions out there when it comes to ice melting in the mountains. Yeah, and it's not... So glacier melt has been studied for a while and it is well understood, but there's still a lot of things that are uh, unknown. For example, forest fire activity. Um, the fact that... There's a lot of forest fire activity and that's expected to get more intense and worse in the upcoming decades. And when there's forest fires, the smoke can get carried 
to large distances. And so some of that smoke drifts over to the mountains and the smoke can deposit on the ice, a little particle of soot deposit on the glacier ice. And then they make the surface of the ice darker, which increases melt. Uh, because then it absorbs more sunlight, so it melts more. The next step to that is that those little particles on the surface of the glacier are carbon, and they can feed little microbes that then can grow further, and they're also dark, so they actually cause more darkening of the surface of the glacier. And that entire thing, this entire cycle, is something that we didn't really know or quantify well until a few years ago. And now it's more and more accepted that this process is a thing and it exists, but we didn't know that forest fire activity could trigger that process and could have such a big impact on glacier melt. And maybe we didn't know that because climate change wasn't as bad before, so we didn't have as much fire, forest fire activity. So it wasn't a question that we were wondering about. But now we see it happen, so we ask those questions and we try to understand it. So climate change is keeping you very busy. Sadly, yes. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> it, the mountains are changing very fast. <laughs> what a sort of fascinating kind of phenomena, the, the connection between that. You know, uh, we, we saw the forest fires that were happening over the summer, and we got a lot of the smoke uh, down in Toronto. And it was like, oh my gosh, the smoke traveled that far. That's so crazy. We got like some smog or whatever. Um, and it is interesting that, you know, we think... This smoke is traveling, but it's also depositing on the mountains. Yep. And that, in turn, is making the mountain darker. It absorbs more sun. It deposits food for microbes, which makes the mountain darker, making it absorb even more sun, even more melt. Like, I would have just thought that the fire itself was warming things up and causing melt. But it's not necessarily that. Yeah, things are sometimes connected in ways that we wouldn't expect it. It's very impressive how through science and through questions and through measurements and analysis, you can discover linkage between elements that you're like, these things are not connected. And then turns out they are. Wow. What a, what a fascinating series of events to happen. They're all connected to some forest fires out West. That's craziness. All right. So could you, if, if you could at all sum up, basically everything that we talked about in, in a nice little package, a sort of moral of the story. Um, the mountains, even though sometimes far away, are very important for water resources, for downstream environments. And mountains are impacted by climate change in a variety of ways. Obviously, it's warmer, so the snow and the glaciers melt more, but also there's some more unsuspected effects. For example, the impacts of forest fires that happen far away that still have an impact on the mountains. The earth is a complex system, everything is connected. And when you impact one aspect of it, other things are impacted. But my job as a scientist is to look at the small segment of mountain glaciers and the frozen part of that cycle. All right, well, thank you for uh, making those connections for us today. And uh, let's all do our part to uh, limit climate change as much as we can so that you can continue skiing and hiking and doing all of your other mountain sports. I'm going to stay in the city because I'm terrified of the outdoors. So I'm going to stay inside, but I'm still going to do my part to make sure that you can enjoy the mountains. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I bet Caroline has climbed a few mountains since we've recorded this episode, but even more of a sure bet, I'm thinking that you're thinking about where water comes from and why we should care about snow melting.
And if I was to make a list of other things that I think about, I'm always thinking about doing a fact check at the end of every episode of We Know Some Stuff. Because we don't know everything. That's why we do a fact check. So Caroline and I both listened to this episode and we did not find anything that needed direct changing. That's not to say that information won't evolve in the future or maybe Caroline will figure out what is going on with that underground river. But for now, we are very satisfied with what was said in this episode. So thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.